Okay, well, it's great to be with you. Um, it's, it's a bit like walking into the House of Commons this morning. Everyone's like, so as long as you just start shouting, here, here, then I'll be fine. Okay, if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry, it's going to come up on the screen. And like Steve said, we're in a series out of Genesis. And we are like, the way I think of it is like we're zooming in on a character. Like if you have a camera, you zoom in, right? And you get a portrait and a view of a moment, a snapshot. And then times you zoom out to get the landscape. And we're trying, to, we're trying to catch this character in the midst of the landscape and go, how does this thing join up to all these other things? Where like origins, the beginnings, that's what Genesis is. The beginnings are all these things that throughout, run throughout the Bible and run throughout history. Uh, and we're going to do that. We're zooming in today on Isaac, particularly Abraham and Isaac. Um, quite a well-known story. If you're used to church, you'd have heard this story. This is a story where Abraham is told to sacrifice his son, which is an ironic story on Father's Day, I guess. Uh, you may have felt like you want to do that, but that's obviously not what we're advocating. So this isn't a story about, here's a good example. It's not like that. But we're going to look at it. It's quite a confusing story. And then we're going to zoom out and go, what, what is God saying to us through uh, this story. Now, as I read it to you, if you know it, I want you to really think about what this story was like in the moment. So forget about the end of this passage if you know the end. Think about as this unfolds, what would this have felt like? If you want to imagine it, that'd be great. You can close your eyes, no sleeping. I know it's dangerous given it's about 45 degrees in here, but just think of what it's like and feel the emotion of the passage. Verse 1, sometime later, God tested Abraham and he said to Abraham, here I am, he replied. God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. He himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb? For the burnt offering. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. There are certain days, aren't there, that are so memorable that they become etched on your memory. There are days that you never forget, and there are the days where when you hear that news, whether it's good news or bad news, you can remember exactly where you were when that happened. Yeah, you can think of those kind of days. I remember, for example, exactly where I was when England won the 2003 Rugby World Cup. That is etched in my memory. I remember Johnny Wilkinson dropping that goal. I remember where I was. I remember exactly where I was when England football team won 
No, I can't remember anything about that, because uh, not in my lifetime. Um, but it's true of bad news as well, isn't it? You know, I remember where I was in 9-11. I remember exactly where I was. I remember the footage. I remember the moment. And I will remember that forever. They become etched on your memory. And those days you never forget. Well, this day we have read about. Abraham and Isaac would have never forgotten this day. This will be etched on their memory forever. This is the day for Abraham, the day that he thought he'd lost his son, and the day that he got his son back again. Now, I don't know what you think when you read that passage. Maybe you've read it for the first time today, or maybe you've heard this story before lots of times. I don't know what your first reaction is, but it's good when you read the Bible to think, what am I actually thinking here? How do I actually feel about this passage? Because when I read this passage and I was preparing, I thought, this is just an awful story. This is, I think this is just a shocking story, and it's a confusing story. It's shocking because God sells seems to tell Abraham to do what seems to be the very worst thing you could ever ask a father to do. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Abraham, and sacrifice him on the mountain. It's shocking. How can God do this? It's, it seems appalling. And also, it just seems cruel because it's like, it's as if it feels like is God just playing with Abraham? You know, uh, sacrifice him. Oh, we're not going to sacrifice him, but I'm just going to play with your emotions in the middle of it. What's, what's going on in here? It's also, I think, confusing. Because if you've been through the series with us, you'll know that Isaac is like a miracle child. Yeah, he's, he's, he's promised, you know, since chapter 12, God's been saying to Abraham, you're going to have a son. You're, you're too old. Your wife is too old. She's barren, even if she was the right age. So there's no way, but, but you're going to have a son. And then eventually, eventually, eventually they arrive. They have this son. Everything they've been waiting for materializes. Everything that's been promised seems to come to fruition. And it's like this miraculous child. He's the, he's the product of promise. And he is, it's through him that promise is going to carry on. And suddenly in a moment, God goes, now take your son and kill him. He said, I just don't understand. God, you've taken so much effort to set this thing up, to get Isaac here in the first place, and now you're just like taking it away. In a moment, just in a moment, if you like, all hope disappears. I don't know if you've ever seen the film Open Water. How many of you have ever seen the film Open Water? It's not a popular film at the 11.30 at Catford. Okay, let me tell you a little bit about the story. Open Water is a, it's a true story. It's not a, very, it's not a rom-com. It's not a very happy story. It's a story of this couple who goes scuba diving off the coast of, of Australia. And it's this awful story where basically they go scuba They all jump in the water. And this couple stay in the water for longer than anybody else. And all the other people come up, get back on the boat. The people on the boat tick off all the names. And they have miscounted how many people they've taken on the trip. And they think the boat is full, they've got everybody back, so the boat starts to set sail, and then the couple come up looking for the boat, and the boat starts to sail away. And it's like, as the boat sails away, all hope just seems to disappear. And the rest of the film is all about you waiting for this couple to get rescued and the boat to come back and find them, right? I don't want to spoil the end of the story, given that so many of you haven't really watched this, but let's just say it, it doesn't end so well, okay? All hope just seems to disappear, They've now made an open water too, which clearly doesn't feature the first couple. But this story is about a whole bunch of other people who go out in the boat. And they all, they, I don't want to spoil it, they, they all jump off to go swimming in the sea out miles out. And then they're all in the water and they suddenly realize no one has loaded, lowered the ladder to get back in the boat. Everything's great, everything's great. And suddenly, bam, in a moment, it's like hope goes. That can be exactly your experience of life, can't it? It's as if God spoke to you. 
dreams. It takes time. Things come to fruition. You think this is going well. And then suddenly in a moment, it's as if it's like God's taking away the thing I thought he promised. Abraham and Sarah have been waiting and Isaac is the fruition of the promise. And suddenly in a moment, it's like it goes. Hope starts to disappear. It's like in one shocking moment, God seems to be wanting to break Abraham's heart and destroy his future. I don't know if you play chess. Any people, you didn't like open water? How many of you play chess? Okay, we're going to find out. Okay, a few of you. I'm not going to play you. I'm really not very good at visual games. Okay, two of my boys especially are really good at chess, so I don't play them anymore. I'm too proud. And, and, um, but if you play someone good at chess, so Steve's pretty good at chess. If I was to play Steve at chess, he's not very good at other things, but at chess, he's good, okay? <laughs> and if we were to play each other at chess, he would do this, not him specifically, but someone who's good at chess. They do this thing on you if you're rubbish, where you're playing chess, and I'm, you know, good chess players are like two, three, four, five moves ahead, right? I'm like one or two moves behind the game, and I'm moving my piece bit by bit, like reacting. And then they do this thing where they move their piece. They look up with this slightly smug look on their face, and they go, check, mate. (laughs) And it's like, you kind of, don't call me mate. And what they've done is they've done this thing where they have cornered you, and you are, it doesn't matter what you do with your king, that's it. You can't move, you can't get out, you are totally caught yeah, there's no way through, you're cornered, you're caught. Well, God seems to be in this story putting Abraham in checkmate. It's like he's orchestrating an impossible situation. So God says to Abraham, I'm promising you, I'm going to make you a great nation. It's going to come through Isaac. Now take Isaac and sacrifice him. And you think, I don't understand. Why, God, are you orchestrating this situation which is so impossible? And why are you creating one which is loaded with such anguish and pain? That's the kind of question you should be asking when you read the passage. Like, you think, what's going on and why? Well, I think when you read this passage, there's probably a whole bunch of things you can bring out of it, right? But here's a couple of things that I feel like I've kind of got from it as I prepared this last week or so. I think God is wanting us to understand or bring into focus for us two particular things. One is where we were before we meet him and what he is doing in response to where we were. Here's the first one, where we were. You see, I think one of the reasons that God seems to create an impossible situation for Abraham and this painful, shocking story is because God is wanting to demonstrate and illustrate to us exactly how impossible and painful our position is before we meet him at the cross. Abraham is caught. It's humanly impossible to get out. And that's the point. You see, he's a father. He looks at his son. He wants his son to live. He wants life. He wants Isaac to flourish. He wants him to survive, so he wants there's a hope and a future. If Isaac dies, the future dies, so he wants life and he wants a future. But at the same time, Abraham now knows that Isaac, if you like, is under judgment. The pronouncement of death has come on Isaac, and Abraham is caught. He can't both save his son's life and obey God. He can't do both of them. He can't satisfy judgment and get mercy. He can't endure death and win life, because that's what he wants. He is, if you like, in checkmate. And in this story, in this situation, we have 
our story. In Abraham and Isaac's position, we have our position. We want life. We want hope. We want a future that's secure. We want to know there's more to life than what we can see and what we can extract. We want to know that when death comes, that life doesn't end. We want that future to be secured. And yet, at the same time, we know that before God, we're guilty. We're under judgment. Well, because of our sin and our brokenness, the death penalty is pronounced over us. That's the anguish in the story over Isaac is the anguish in our story. We deserve judgment and Isaac deserves judgment. One of the things we struggle about this story is we look at this story and we think, how can God do this to Isaac? Because Isaac seems so completely innocent. Here's this young man. By the way, the scholars think he's not a little kid, probably more like a teenager or in his 20s, so he's not tiny. But how can God do something? Isaac just seems to be an innocent bystander and God says, oh, you're going to take him, Abraham, take him and kill him. How, how can God do that? You think, Isaac seems innocent. At the same time, you think, and how can Abraham seemingly be so passive about the whole thing? Now, in one sense, you can read the story and go, actually, Abraham's being obedient, which he is. But when you read it on face value, you kind of go, he's completely passive. Because in Genesis 18, when God says, I'm going to destroy an entire city called Sodom, God's ple- Abraham pleads with God. He goes, no, 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 don't kill them all. I'm going to... He pleads with him, doesn't he? He negotiates. He says, how about if there's 50? How about if there's 45? What about if there's 40 people? And he's pleading and negotiating with God. And God relents with him and negotiates with him. And yet you get to Genesis 22 with his own son... And you think, Abraham is completely silent. It's like, where's the pleading gone? Why does Abraham seemingly just accept what is going on? Well, because I think Abraham knows Isaac isn't innocent either. Ever since Adam and Eve, ever since their rebellion, sin infects and affects every person Every generation. In other words, no one in the story is innocent. No one's innocent. And the firstborn child, the firstborn male child in the family, which is what Isaac is, sits in a very significant and particular situation in the family. Now, this is difficult for us to understand. If you've if you grown up in a Western country like I have, you'll find this passage difficult to understand initially. Okay? If you've grown up in another culture, you may find it easier to understand because culturally uh, you see the world differently and maybe more in line with how ancient people would have seen it. Ancient people would have experienced and understood this story differently. If we grow up in the West, we think individually, don't we? I hear this news. How's it going to affect me? How's it going to affect my plans? How's it going to affect my aspirations? We think very individually. If you grew up in Abraham's culture and maybe a culture in other parts of the world, we tend to think more corporately. We think, how's this going to affect my family? How's it going to affect my community? How's it going to affect my village? Critically, in that kind of culture... The reputation and the performance of one person can affect the whole family they represent. Yeah? That may be true of the culture you're from. One family member can bring honor or shame on the entire family in this kind of culture. Now, that is why when in Luke 15, Jesus tells a very famous story. He says, I'm going to tell you a story about two sons. Often we call it the story of the prodigal son, but it's not just about one son. One stays home, one goes away. When the younger son leaves and goes away... He brings dishonor, not just on himself, but he brings dishonor and shame on his father, on his family, on the whole village. You know that story? Right. But when the younger son returns, what does the father do? What's his first move? He runs, right? Now, why does the father run? 
Well, we, he runs because he loves the sun. That's tr- absolutely true. That's one of the reasons he's running. But he's running because he knows there's a whole bunch of other people going to be running, running at the same time. The father gets to the son first because the village are going to run as well. And if the village gets to that boy first, that boy may not make it out alive because he's brought shame on everybody, right? Because one person can honor or shame the whole family that they represent. Now, Isaac is the firstborn male in the family. He is in particularly the most significant position in that sense. They're going to inherit, the person who's firstborn male is going to inherit the majority of the family estate. Effectively, the future of the whole family is going to be secured through the firstborn son. All the hopes of the family going forward are embodied in the firstborn son. He represents, if you like, the whole family. Now, you put those two things together. Everybody has sinned. No one is innocent, okay? You put that with that and the idea that the firstborn son represents the whole family. What you find is, and you find it throughout the Old Testament, that often, again and again, the firstborn male son in a family is considered liable for the sins of the entire family because he represents the future of the whole family. The firstborn male in a family is considered liable for the sins of the whole family. That's why you read through the Old Testament, you read through bits of Exodus, bits of Numbers, particularly the Mosaic law, you'll find again and again God saying, the firstborn male, human, the firstborn male animal, they belong to me. And their lives are forfeit, are under judgment, unless there is a redemption penalty paid for them. And the Mosaic law is full of this. Basically, people could redeem them by paying money once a year, or they could do certain acts of service in the tabernacle, or they could sacrifice through, regularly through the year in order to redeem and save the firstborn male. But if they're not saved, then their lives are forfeit. In other words, the debt over the every family, the collective debt is associated with the firstborn male. Unless there is payment redemption, he is liable. Now, when you understand this, what it means is that when God says to Abraham, you're going to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham knows exactly what is going on. He knows. He knows that Isaac isn't innocent, and he knows that Isaac is the firstborn male of the family through Sarah. And so therefore, he is considered liable. He is the one whose life is forfeit unless there is a redemption payment made. He knows that this is all about sin, which is why God doesn't just say to Abraham, kill him. It's not just like, get a knife and kill him, although he's got a knife. God says to Abraham, build a fire, get the wood, make a fire offering. It's going to be a burnt offering. A burnt offering was to do with sin. It was an atonement, called an atonement offering. It's to do an offering to do with sin. Abraham knew exactly what was going on. Tim Keller writes a book called Counterfeit Gods. He talks about this story. And in it, he says, God is calling in the debt. There's a debt to be paid because of sin and brokenness. Isaac is liable for it, for the whole family. And God is calling in the debt. Abraham knew exactly what was going on. And this is exactly where we were. In need of mercy, but under judgment. Completely liable, completely caught, and critically, completely unable to solve it by our own efforts. Okay, Abraham can't solve this. Isaac can't solve this. They cannot get out of it humanly. There's no way 
through. And the reason why that's important is because we're pretty much addicted to trying to solve our own issues by ourselves, aren't we? We like to do that, which is why again and again in the Old Testament, you'll find story after story where God seems to put people in positions humanly where they can't get out themselves because God is teaching them again and again, you need a deliverer. In other words, you can't solve this. It's not your place. I'm going to put you in a humanly impossible situation in order to show you again and again, you need someone to save you and deliver you. Abraham is told, you're going to have a baby, but Abraham's too old. Sarah's barren, but you're going to have a baby. It's humanly impossible. Moses, you're a murderer. You're not very good at speaking. Uh, You're a wanted man, but you're going to get your people, who, by the way, have been slaves in this country for 400 years. And by the way, this country is the most powerful military nation of the world at the time, and you're a very important asset, so there's no way they're going to let you go because you're their slaves, you're their servants. But we're going to get you out. And by the way, part of the route of your escape is through an impassable sea. It's completely impossible. You know the story of Gideon? Gideon, an angel shows up and says, Gideon, you're like, a, you're like a huge, incredible warrior. Well, Gideon is hiding in a hole in the ground. And they said, you're going to fight the Midianites, get an army together. Gideon's never fought anybody, but he gets 30,000 people together to fight. And then God says, there's far too many. We're going to do it with 300. What's God doing? God is putting Gideon, putting Moses, putting Abraham in humanly impossible situations because God is wanting to go, do you know, it's not about you. It's not about how clever you are. You cannot save yourselves. Folks, we can't save ourselves. We need a deliverer. We need a rescuer. We need someone who can come and win us out of our situation. That is why when you become a Christian, if you're not a Christian yet, when you make that decision, the first thing you do is you surrender. Because you're saying to God, you know what? I acknowledge I can't do this. I acknowledge that I'm not God. I think you are. I'm going to call you Lord. I'm letting you be in charge. I acknowledge I need a saviour. And the anguish, the pain you feel. When you read this story, you think this is outrageous. It's shocking. It's painful. How can this be? The anguish and the pain you feel is there because that is exactly the anguish and the pain that is in our story before we meet him. Humanly caught, impossible. We need mercy, but we're under judgment and we can't get out. That's exactly why it's there. The great thing about the story, though, is it turns, it doesn't stay there. That's not where it ends. And that's true of us. Our story doesn't have to end there. It doesn't stay there. There's a way out, if you like, that humanly you can't manufacture. But because of him, there's a way through. And the story turns. Because this story is not just about, if you like, Isaac representing us. Isaac represents us in the story. You read it, you kind of go, it's like us. We're under judgment. We need mercy. Uh, And there's nothing we can do. We're caught. But Isaac also in the story represents who Jesus is both. And we see in Isaac, if you like, a foreshadowing of a redeemer, a substitute, sacrificial lamb who is considered liable for the whole family of the world. That's why when John the Baptist looks up and sees Jesus, what does he say when he sees him? He says, behold, which means Not just can you see, it means like understand who he is. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. In other words, behold, one is coming who's the firstborn, there's the same phrase, over all creation, who is going to be considered liable for the sins of the entire family of the world. Isaac considered liable for this family's sins. Now there's one coming who is going to be considered liable for the sins of the entire world. World. The hints 
about Isaac representing Jesus are throughout the whole passage. It's quite fun. It's like a kind of treasure. Have you ever done a treasure trail with your kids, if, you, if you're a parent, and you leave little hints everywhere? Well, through chapter 22, there are hints everywhere that this is pointing towards, if you like, a bigger story. Let me show you a few. Right at the start, what are we told? We're told God is testing Abraham. Takes Abraham, says, go into the desert. I'm going to test you. Right at the start of Jesus' ministry, what happens? By, led by the Spirit, says Jesus was led into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Abraham, right at the start, tested by God in the wilderness. Now Jesus is going to be tempted by the devil in the wilderness. God speaks to Abraham. And he says this, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Does those words sound familiar to you? Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Well, what happens at Jesus' baptism? The father opens up heavens and says, this is my son, my only son, whom I love. This is my son whom I love. It's almost exactly the same phrase. As they climb the mountain, Abraham cuts the wood and gives the very wood that he is going to be sacrificed on to Isaac to carry. Who else carries the wood they're going to be sacrificed on up a mountain? Jesus carries the cross towards his crucifixion. And all of this takes place, in a place, uh, at, takes place at a place called Mount Maria. Now the scholars reckon this is exactly geographically the same spot that hundreds of years later Solomon builds a temple, which begins all the kind of temple worship and temple sacrifices. And then hundreds of years later, the Romans name it a different name. And they give it the name Calvary. Everything is designed to remind us that this story is part of a much bigger story. See, when you read this story, you read it and you kind of go, there's just awful, awful pain in this story. But the story is also loaded with incredible hope. There's anguish and there's hope. Because when we read the story, what we are seeing is the cross. So just as Abraham is about to bring the knife down, yeah? He's about to, it says he's about to slay his son. God calls out, doesn't he? He goes, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham looks up and God says, don't touch him. And he looks over and he sees there in the thicket, in the the brambles, amongst the thorns, there's a ram caught by its horns. And it's caught. And that's now to be like the substitutional sacrifice instead of the son. Hundreds of years later, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who would wear a crown of thorns, would be nailed to a cross. But this time, at this point, the stories differ. Because in Isaac's story, just as he's about to die, God calls out and stops the whole thing, doesn't he? Like, calls out. When Jesus is on the cross, just as death is about to be brought, just as judgment is poured out on him, there is to be no calling out, no reprieve, only silence. When I started preparing this message, I often just write notes. Anything I can think of, I'll write it down, okay? Often there are a load of rubbish, so you'll be glad to know I edit them out on the way. But occasionally I write something useful. And I wrote in my notes this. I said, what could be worse than being told to sacrifice your own son? Surely only one thing, really. To actually follow through and sacrifice your son. To give him up. You see, through 
this moment, Abraham and Isaac receive mercy. They get life. They get hope. Their, their future, if you like, is secured through the cross. If you understand the cross and what happened on the cross, there we get life. We get mercy. We get our hope. We get future that is now secured. And because of the cross, if you look at the cross and you understand it, you can pray to God. You can say to him what he says to Abraham. God says to Abraham, Abraham... Now I know that you fear me because you did not withhold from me your only son. That's what God says to Abraham at the end of this passage. Well, when you look at the cross, it means you and I can say to God, because of the cross, now I know you love me. You care for me. You will provide for me. You will not abandon me. Because you did not withhold from me your one and only son. We get to pray to him what he says over Abraham. It means that we can agree with the Apostle Paul. Paul writes this in Romans 8. He says this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? It means that if God, if you're prepared to do this, to, to not cry out, not stop the whole thing, but follow right through, if you are prepared to do that, it means surely, 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 there is no way you are ever going to relent from following through with the promises you've said. You're going to do all the things you said you're going to do because you have paid like the ultimate down payment. That's what Romans 8 means. I want to, I want to close with this one thing. Sometimes we can be in situations where we feel like, we feel a bit like Abraham. We feel a bit cornered. It's like everything we'd hoped for, it's like suddenly it feels like it's just gone or it's going. It's, it's ebbing away and we feel like I cannot Human, the matter which way I go, I can't humanly seem to solve this. I cannot see a way through on this. I want to close with, there's one little phrase that you find in Genesis 22, which is like another hint, okay? I don't know if you saw it. Genesis 22, verse 4, it says this, on the third day. If you see that in the Bible, you need to underline that everywhere you see it. On the third day. Because throughout the Bible, the third day is synonymous with the day of breakthrough. The third day is the moment where things that seemed impossible, suddenly something possible gets birthed. Abraham climbs the mountain on the third day. God meets Moses and the people on Sinai on the third day. Joshua crosses the Jordan on the third day. Jonah gets out of the, out of the whale on the third day. Jesus, the sacrificial lamb of God, is raised on the third day. Okay? It means this. It means that even when it feels bleak and you feel cornered and caught and you think, God, I cannot see a way through. I don't know how you're going to bring anything good out of this. And sometimes we never understand until eternity. But it means that I believe you are the God of the third day. I believe you can solve impossible situations and that you don't give up on me, that you will deliver me because you're the God of the third day. Because the third day is a day of breakthrough, it's the day of deliverance, and it's the day of resurrection. Let's stand. We're going to pray. Maybe the band can come back up. Let's just pray. Now, there's power in the name of Jesus. And 
this story we've looked at is not here just to interest us. It's here to help us and feed us and strengthen us and let us know that God wants to do what he says he wants to do. So just before I pray, as we close our eyes, if you know you feel like God is speaking to you, you feel God's spoken to you either about you need to come to him or you need to come back to him or there's an area of your life you just feel, I feel caught, but God, I want, I'm going to stop trying to solve this myself. I want you to help me. If you know God's spoken to you, just lift your hands before him. Let's close our eyes. I want to give people a little bit of privacy. So just where you are, you just close your eyes. You just lift your hands to him and then I'm going to pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is living and active and that there's power in your name, Jesus. So we want to pray to you. Thank you that you say in Isaiah, your word does not return to us empty. It doesn't return empty. So I want to pray for every sense of people sensing you speak, every word that's kind of landed in our hearts, every sense of truth where you think, no, God, I believe you're for me, not against me that he who would not spare his own son, surely would he not give us all these things, that we believe your promises are true. But where we felt cornered or questioned or where we feel we're in checkmate humanly, God, I pray that across this room we would know, God, that you are with us. You're a deliverer. That's what you do. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd guide the steps of many people in this room in terms of how to, how to walk this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow morning, in light of what you said to them this, today. I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.